HRN has a brand new look, but we're still sharing the same delicious stories. Invest in the future of food radio by becoming a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Wilmes. And we have a, a, a very special guest, as always, uh, a very special guest uh, to <laughs> interview this week and, and to introduce you to, hopefully. Um, Reem Asil is the chef and founder of Reem's California in Oakland and now in San Francisco in the Mission. Reem, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Uh, let's start with the the backstory. How did you become a chef? How did you start the restaurant? <laughs> How did I be? I just people started calling me chef, so <laughs> I guess that's the so now you're a chef. Right. So now I'm a chef, right? That sounds pretty easy. Um, <laughs> easy breezy. Um, I started Reams California um, back in 2014, uh, but prior to that, I sort of embarked on a culinary career in 2010 when I was uh, really burnt out from, you know, an over decade long career of working in nonprofits. Uh, You know, my whole sort of life's purpose is uh, I'm a very dramatic person. So I I need I was dedicated to social (laughs) justice and you know, married to the movement, so to speak, and then sort of hit a wall in terms of the transformation that I wanted. So I kind of fell into the culinary world, not through my love of food, although certainly I loved food, but for my love of community and wanting to use sort of a better tool um, to build the sort of transformation that I wanted to see that it wasn't quite doing it for me in the nonprofit world. And so food had always been sort of a backdrop for me. I was, I would say I was an amateur baker cook for 20 years. Um, I moved to California in 2003 and just really discovered this bounty of ingredients in California. And the more I like learned about the foods, (laughs) um, Uh, of California ingredients, uh, the closer I got to my roots and the roots of my ancestors, my I'm Arab, um, the daughter of Palestinian and Syrian immigrants. And, um, you know, took uh, being part of the diaspora sort of took my food for granted. So yeah, that food was always there. So I learned how to cook the foods of my people as an adult through a California lens. And so in 2010, I really wanted to explore that. And I took a really big leap of faith. And I quit my job and enrolled myself in a culinary school and, you know, cut my teeth in bakeries and uh, catering companies. I was a bartender for three years. I really just wanted to absorb every facet of the business in order to start Reams. And then, yeah, I, you know, started doing my pop-ups and those became popular. And it wasn't until I sort of uh, got into a really renowned uh, women uh, food ownership program called La Cucina here in San Francisco that I took that uh, sort of idea and dream of an Arab street corner bakery and manifested it into a business. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a, that's a whole lot. Um, would you, would you talk a little bit about the, those values uh, that you carried from your nonprofit work and felt like you weren't moving towards or felt like uh, you would be able to to work 
with differently in food than, than you had been able to previously? Yeah. Well, I just really, you know, in all my life, uh, learning about um, the struggle for change and the movement for change, the most um, inspiring sort of moments in human history where things have changed for the better, <laughs> where people get to stand in their own dignity uh, as humans has been from the ground up. It's been from when people in struggle um, get together and realize their collective power and then build a world that uh, cares for each other. Um, I certainly saw that in my organizing work. I mean, it was so transformational to see, um, you know, I was a labor organizer and I remember workers being afraid to even tell me their wage, you know, like they were so secretive of everything because they were afraid to go from that transformation to start talking to each other, to seeing the connections with each other, and then to go and delegate to the boss that they want a union. Like that was life changing for me. So I really, um, I think the value of personal transformation, of collective transformation for the purposes of um, creating a world in which we care for one another, where everybody can stand in their human dignity, that is the basis of everything that I do is to facilitate um, that in a society where especially marginalized folks, folk, you know, BIPOC folks, folks um, who've not been given a voice get a chance to find their voice. Um, and I wanted to make sure that um, I was facilitating that. And I think, unfortunately, uh, that is really hard when all of the cards are stacked against you all the time. Even the best of us who you know, want to see a better future for our children and, and um, for our community, we get, uh, we get caught up in the struggles of capitalism. Uh, you know, we're just trying to survive. And that is not a great place, you know, to imagine what a better world can look like. Um, and so, yeah, I was constantly finding like, oh, my God, we know what we don't want. And we're fighting against these like forces that are displacing us from our homes, that are gentrifying our neighborhoods, that are keeping us in this cycle of poverty, but we can't even, we don't even know what we really want. Um, and so when I thought about Reams, um, I was really inspired by Arab street corner bakeries in the Arab world because they, it's this like very organic way of creating sanctuary space for people to just be their whole, them, their whole selves, despite political turmoil that's happening around them. So I wanted to start with just like, creating that kind of space for people to breathe and to be them whole, their whole selves. And then from there to be able to imagine, okay, this is what we want our spaces to look like. Um, so I, yeah, so Reams is really sort of the core to our value is that we want to build strong, resilient community because we know it's going to be tough out there no matter what. We're not building a utopia, but if we can create a space that, um, helps us be able to manifest or imagine the kind of community that we want to see, a strong, resilient, connected community where everybody can stand in their dignity. <laughs> um, that That is part and parcel. And so we do that through many ways. We do it through, obviously, um, jobs is a big piece of the work that I do coming as my background as a labor organizer. We believe that um, everybody's labor, especially with food, I mean, we are you know, that is 
part and parcel to our survival as a people, and we should be valued for being able to take care of our community through nourishing food. Um, so the jobs piece and valuing that labor and giving people career pathways and ways to be leaders, that's one way. The second way is through healthy foods, foods that's connected to the land, that respects the farmers, that builds the ecosystem. Everybody should have access to that healthy food. Um, and then the third way is the space, providing a sense of home to everyone, uh, whether or not you know Arab food or not. So those are kind of the three uh, uh, sort of core tenets of how we build strong, resilient community at Reams. I mean, wow, just... I mean, listening to you, you know, speak about such a strong, you know, social impact element of your business, um, you know, you you also obviously make really amazing, delicious <laughs> food. So, like, I mean, I guess it's kind of like, how do you balance the two? Do you ever find yourself um, worrying, you know, if you're sacrificing one for the other? Oh, my God. All the time. <laughs> but I found a way to reconcile those two things. I think the pandemic helped a lot. Um, I think that this industry, the food, the restaurant industry in particular, I would say, um, has built these, this sort of ethos uh, that really uh, doesn't value the people. <laughs> like the food gets valued almost, the product gets valued over the people. And for, um, for me... Of course, we make delicious food, but the reason we make delicious food is because we have built a space of learning so that we can be the best at our craft. Um, and that comes because we take care of one another. So the food will always come if you invest in the people. The ingredients and the recipes we should be focusing on is how, um, how do we take care of our folks so that they bring their best selves <laughs> to the work? Um, but... It is hard. I know, especially like in this industry where it focuses on the chef and, you know, obviously I named my restaurant after my name, which probably in retrospect wasn't the best idea. But, um, you know, your name is on that and you want to provide the best. You want the best sort of rendition of your culture <laughs> to the world. Um, and you can get caught up in that if, you know, everybody's calling you a chef and you have to be the best and. But um, I found that the food at Reams has been the best when we've really focused internally on our operations and our people. Uh, that it, that just sort of comes as a byproduct. So, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, it's not always easy. And I think the business side of things is always hard because we're, like, un, sort of wavering that, um, that the business... It, we want a profitable business, and that's going to help um, all of our employees, but not at the expense of our employees. So it has to come from different ways. So that means we have to get more creative about, you know, may, we may not serve all the fanciest of fancy things. You know, we may have to sort of give in other ways, but what we don't try to compromise is on the value of life <laughs> or the quality of life for our workers. So like our labor costs become a lot more fixed, regardless of how the business is doing. And that, you know, that every once in a while comes at odds, because what that means is we have to charge a little bit more for our food, because a lot of it is in the labor. Um, and but we can't charge so much that we price out our community. And then, 
you know, only sort of attract the particular <laughs> sort of person with a particular disposable income. So, you know, all of these things we have to grapple with. But we've, I think the pandemic has helped us sort of figure out a way to be explicit about our values and attract the kind of people that we want to be part of the Reams ethos. A lot of those decisions are, are, I mean, they're hard to make as an individual or, a, you know, a small group of, of leaders within a business, but even harder to do, I would imagine, in a, a kind of a cooperative environment or an environment where, where everybody is involved in, in those kind of day-to-day tactical decisions for the business. How do you, how do you sort of share responsibility across your team? How do you, how do you bring people into decisions that they wouldn't be able to participate in at other restaurants or, or they haven't in previous jobs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really it's it, it's doesn't some it's not something that comes overnight. Um, I think you know Reams is going through a transition into a worker-owned co-op model, but we are not technically that. And so, the work of me as a small business owner from the onset, and I come out of the co-op movement. I worked at Arizmendi Bakery and Pizzeria, which is a well-renowned. Um, co-op based on the Cheeseboard Collective here in Berkeley. And so I learned some of those pieces of like, you can have, yeah, you need to build that participatory sort of workspace. And that doesn't, it doesn't come overnight, particularly when you're working with communities that have been told that their voice doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of unlearning Um, There's a lot of assumptions that people make around sort of what is expertise and what is not. Um, And so my job as the leader is to build that culture of ownership, right? Um, So, you know, I've created sort of a, a robust central management team that really grew with me in the company. Like they didn't you know, we were on the same level playing field learning together. And so that has helped in their own development. Um, uh, But now we have this whole set of workers that we have to kind of build the muscle for them to participate and and sharing that power. Um, For me, what that means is taking the time uh, to teach people. (laughs) That takes time, you know, it's like the expertise doesn't come overnight. And so everything is a learning opportunity uh when even we approach a dish we have to sort of break it down for folks and why you know why we choose to do i'm just using sort of a minute example of like why we um, choose to order this ingredient versus make it from hand and yada 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 so we like take the time to work through um, our decision making with workers to help them participate fully so they can understand Because if you only get pieces of the puzzle, how can you actually weigh in on it? Um, And we practice open book management where we share all of the, both the ups, but quite honestly, a lot of the downs of the business so that people could see the implications. Um, And the hope from sort of managing folks this way sort of playing a more coaching stance is that eventually there, you know, there's a lot more self management that's happening in the teams at Reams, right? That there's sort of a kind of semi-autonomy that we're trickling down responsibility to our frontline employees. So it doesn't just all sit down, sit on our managers to have to know everything and do everything because that's not sustainable. Um, 
So, yeah, that is really what we're focusing on um, as we transition into worker ownership. Obviously, giving workers a financial stake in the performance of the company is a big part. People are self-interested. And so giving them that um, is a huge, you know, a uh, huge part. There's not a lot of our communities that have ownership uh, over their labor and their wealth. Um, and so that is going to empower them to make different decisions once they become owners. So, yeah, that's a very long-winded way <laughs> of talking about how we we approach management. But yeah, I think democratic participation requires teaching, a lot of learning, and a lot of unlearning. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a complicated topic, and and with a lot of a lot of nuance and a lot of very specific, I don't know, you know sort of case by case uh, process. And and there really are not that many companies that are doing this at at scale. Uh, so, like you know, businesses like yours or like mine, where we have we have these aspirations, there are not a lot of role models of other companies that have done that or, or can kind of right. lead the way. Um, especially as we grow and expand. I mean, you just opened a not just, but fairly recently opened a second location. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, the ones that I keep coming back to are like King Arthur Flour and mm-hmm. Cabot Cheese, Equal Exchange, right? There are there are some examples, but uh, really not Bob's, very many. Was yeah. it Bob's Red Mill? Yeah. yeah. I mean, but those were like huge companies by yeah. the time. They had a lot more resources. Uh, I think we're trying to figure this out from the ground up, and it's a lot more complicated because what I'm trying to do is be a student with my employees (laughs) to figure it out together. So it's not like, okay, here's the worker ownership model. Try it on. You know, it's like, what is the model that works for us the best? And let's figure it out together. And Reams has kind of always been like that with our customers base. Like the company has definitely sort of um, developed with our followers and with our customers being on the journey with us. So there's something to that because then you held, you get held accountable a lot more to those values uh, when you have a lot of people participating, but it's obviously a much more complicated process, the more people that are involved. So. Yeah. And I mean, what I found really compelling is you guys have such a clear, like primary goal and focus and like vision. And I think that's something that like entrepreneurs like across the board can relate to. Um, And just like that emphasis of like knowing like, you know, what, what your primary values are that like, you're not going to compromise on. I mean, you know, in your case, it's your workers. And I think it it is like a compass almost. So even though you don't have a map, (laughs) you know, like what direction is north. Yep. Everything kind of stacks up. How is this going to impact our workers? <laughs> and that is, in, in many ways, a great sort of thing to have where you don't have all these competing forces. Yeah, you can keep your priorities really clear. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easy to get caught up, you know, uh, especially, I mean, I, I would say I'm a serial entrepreneur. I always want to <laughs> do everything. Um, so it's like a humbling way of being like, okay. I know you want to do everything, but, you know, what will be the most impactful right now, right here? Um, so that is helpful. <laughs> do you find that, that that is part of what attracts people to work with you? Or, or do they come in knowing that that's part of the deal or, or do they learn about it <laughs> later? 
they learn about it very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, this girl is crazy, but we love, we're here for it. Um, no, I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that there is something uh, in the people that work at Reams that doesn't just settle for status quo. Uh, and we try very much to be very clear about our values so that we attract those type of folks. And uh, for some people, that's too much. They just want to, you know, I always tell my workers, I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm like, you guys are part of the revolution. I don't know what else to tell you, you know. And uh, I love that. You know, yeah, and this is not Sorry. a short feat we're doing. We need to we need to be successful because we need other restaurants to do this. And I'm just very transparent with them. And I think there's something that that, that makes them feel very important um, by that. So there's yeah, I do think we attract those types that are looking for a little bit more for themselves. Um, and maybe that we bring that out in people who didn't know that we saw when we interviewed them. So it's very much like an organizing campaign. Um, and but I think that there are enough people like I'm definitely the visionary, but I try to surround myself also with the the people who are um, the sort of logistics operational minded to, to help. I mean, I think there's a part of me that is that, but it allows me to continue being the visionary when I have those other folks to sort of compliment. So we're always kind of thinking about what creates the most dynamic organization workplace? It is, you know, a little bit of everything so that we're not just like cultish, you know, and we're all the same kind of people. Um, <laughs> so, but we definitely sort of look for that, that person that either is showing the drive and the desire to grow and, and want something bigger than them, just themselves, or we see the potential for that person and we feel like we can teach the skills of collective collect collective um work and cooperate cooperation um yeah that's something that has to be learned a lot of the times because society has taught us otherwise yeah and, and learned uh, incrementally often learned slowly slowly yeah through struggle and yeah conflict all of that stuff but i just think that a lot of you know reams is primarily um you know it's majority people of color and um, I've just learned over time, the more we like bring people's cultures to the forefront, we realize that they come from those kind of cultures. It's only the sort of U.S. centric, Eurocentric sort of model of individualism and, um, you know, capitalism <laughs> that has stunted us a little bit and kind of trapped us in these confines. So, uh yeah, I feel very lucky that we have like so many cultures represented where people can kind of tap into that because the more we go back to the roots, the more we realize, oh, we're totally capable of this. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. HRN is excited to unveil the new look of Food Radio. We have a brand new identity and a new website. Our site makes it easier than ever to discover new podcasts and dig through our archive of 15,000 episodes. It's been 12 years since HRN started broadcasting food radio, and we've made it this far thanks to the support of our global listening community. It's because of member donations that Why Food is on the air along with 40 other weekly shows. Your contributions gave HRN the security we needed to stay on the airwaves during the pandemic and are allowing us to reopen our studio. 
becoming a monthly sustaining member of HRN shows me how much Why Food and Food Radio means to you. At HRN, we're investing in the future of food radio. To do the same, become a monthly sustaining member of HRN. When you do, you'll get access to our very special secret menu. We've gathered exclusive discounts and offers from some of our favorite food and beverage brands. Enjoy insider pricing on goods that will ship right to your door. Join our community of monthly donors and special deals will come your way throughout the summer. A gift of five or $10 a month gives our community the consistent stability it needs to keep the voice of America's food movement alive and thriving. Become a monthly sustaining member at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And we're back. You're listening to Why Food. And our guest this week is Reem Asil, chef and founder of Reem's California in Oakland and San Francisco. Uh, Reem, when, when you introduced yourself at the top of the show, you talked a little bit about the similarities between California and Middle Eastern cooking or or the ingredients that you find in California and the ingredients you find in Arab countries. Uh, would you talk a little bit more about those similarities and, and how you've kind of connected those two culinary traditions at the restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I think in essence, you know, um, you know, Arabs, you know, and, and Palestinians in particular, we live off our land <laughs> and the land is so integral um, to our foodways. And unfortunately, um, being in the diaspora, but also just the conditions of war and occupation and apartheid and being severed um, from those foods, you know, uh, you know, my mother's generation in particular, you know, she was um, a refugee in 1967 and um, my, you know, they weren't able to bring those foods, you know? And so I knew, I didn't know about a huge part of myself and it wasn't until I started learning about farming and the land and what grows and what communities have thrived off of for generations here, particularly indigenous communities, black communities, um, Latinx communities, uh, that there's just so many similarities into the way they survive and the way that, uh, my ancestry has survived. There's just so many commonalities, um, that, yeah, it's important to understand how we grow and cultivate our food. So that's one. Um, and I think that that's what communities do, The not just Arab communities, but um, communities in diaspora. They bring a piece of home. They smuggle their seeds <laughs> and they, they grow it. And there's something really beautiful about doing that in, the, in California. Um, I also kind of understood yeah, so that's like unlocking a piece of yourself, right? And the continuity of your history. So there's something very powerful about that. Um, I think the other thing is the seasonality of food and how dynamic food is in the Arab world because it's seasonal. And it's very particular to, the, it's very similar to the climate of California. And so the way that Californians eat seasonally and the way we celebrate the vegetable, um, that too is... Uh, a big part of Arab cookery um, and a part that fascinated me and made me sort of inspired to learn more about um, our cuisine. Um, and then it's resourceful, right? Like I think, you know, we take pita chips, <laughs> we take 
leftover pitas and we turned them into pita chips and we toss them into salads and, you know, we take, uh, you know, byproducts of other foods and then we fold them into something else. And I feel like that is a lot of California cuisine. And so it kind of shares the story of resilience and resourcefulness that, um, that is also really powerful to me because especially communities with less means, uh, how, how do we continue, you know, I think it's the three things, right? How, uh, how do we keep the stories alive of, of our food ways that we've been severed from? And, you know, it's so powerful that we can do it away from home. We create home away from home. Um, how do we continue to uh, be skilled in um, cultivating the land and respecting the land um, and cooking seasonally and all those things? Um, and then three, how do we survive as a people um, and be resourceful with the foods that we do have? So, yeah, I think all of those things have taught me about the resilience of Arabs and the resilience of, 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 of communities that have really learned how to work off the land here. It gives me hope. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm curious, can you make us hungry? Like what are some oh. of the like, <laughs> of the maybe like most in, enduring or most like endearing uh, things on your menu? Uh, well, I'd have to start with the bread. <laughs> I, mean, I love bread. I love it. Yeah. yeah I mean, brand, bread transcends cultures, right? It, but it's also the the, the pathway it's it's the lifeline of Arab history so it tells you the story and what I think Reams does really well is we we honor um the living the living breathing bread it's not like this you know our bread is sourdough based it's naturally fermented I say it's like how our ancestors did it you know we have and it's like very trace amounts of starter um so we really let time do its thing um, so that's where we like borrow the ingredients of our climate in California <laughs> to, to let a, let that do the work. And, and so it's just these amazing complex flavors. There's nothing better than biting into a flatbread <laughs> with that perfect chew and the, the, that sort of elements of sourdough. Um, you know, the za'atar, which is the main component of our men'ushe, which is our sort of signature flatbread, which is this herbaceous <laughs> spice mix that, you know, Arabs are very confusing. We call za'atar the plant and the spice mix. Um, but uh, it's an ancient plant. It's also a plant that has provided sustenance and health for us um, in in what we call Bilad al-Sham, the, the sort of greater Syria region. Um, and it's mixed with sumac, which is a berry, and sesame seeds, and it's perfect, earthy, tangy, nutty trifecta, and we slather that. And so getting those good ingredients um, on that flatbread. And yeah, but then we say it's like traditional Arab street food with California love. So we always sort of honor the the, the more um, California ingredients, you know, so you can there's no rules to Arab food. That's the thing. We're so flexible. You know, you can take that za'atar flatbread and throw some labne and avocado on it, you know, toss some arugula in there. And it's very California. So, um, yeah, our food is really fresh and bold in flavors and really quite simple. You know, we don't try to do too much. We really honor sort of the ingredients that we put into that food. But, yeah, I think... 
Um, you know, the bread is eaten with everything that we have at Reams, <laughs> from our hummus to our falafel. And it's kind of funny because I joke that when I started Reams, we weren't going to have those things on the menu because that like there's more to Arab food than that. I wanted to like show the sophistication. And yet you can show sophistication in even the most loved things like hummus and falafel. So yeah, to us, it's about sort of the care that we take in making those things and the ingredients that we use. I love I love that and I am hungry so success. Yes, good. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm really curious to hear more about the process of learning to cook your ancestral food as an adult. Was that mm. what was that process like was it was it easier because you came into it with a more a deeper understanding of the context and the history or was it harder because you didn't have that sort of imprinting that happens when you learn to cook something as a kid? Hmm. That's a great question. I haven't probably even processed that. I think, I think it on the, you know, at a very basic level, we all have it in our roots. <laughs> I really believe that. I mean, I don't know if it's in the memories um, of the food growing up, uh, of going on trips, of seeing. Uh, so there's some like sort of un uh, inexplicable sort of memories, muscle memory that you have, uh, when you approach these foods, I, I would certainly say that the kitchen was seen as an oppressive place for me as a kid. And so I stayed away from it. Um, and so when, as an adult, I think I was better poised to learn because I was able to enter the kitchen on my own terms. And that just makes the learning experience better, right? W w instead of being forced to as a woman or as a child <laughs> uh, because you have to cook, you know? So I think that in, in that way, the learning, uh, because it was like a place of my healing um, to learn these foods and understand them. Um, I was, I, I'm an avid reader. I was obsessed with cookbooks. I was reading left and right. And so seeing multiple perspectives and then being able to relate it back to asking my mom, you know, how did you guys do this? How do you do it different? My mom was also a very shortcut cook. She was a very, <laughs> she's like whip things up together in a flash. She's, you know, she was really good at flavor development. And I think that that's where I get sort of my knack for flavors from her, but in the technique and all of that stuff, I really had to learn from, uh, what do you call that more objective <laughs> force, like a cookbook or, you know, the, the chefs and, and the teachers that I've had along the way as I've learned to build dreams. I've had a lot of mentors. So I wouldn't say I'm self-taught. Um, I've had a lot of teachers, but having the different perspectives um, that, yeah, that I can sort of draw on from on my own terms has been super helpful. And then, yeah, and then I've put, I think I must have had a knack for it in some way from childhood because I put my own spin on things and it works out. So thank you. Shout out to my grandmother and my mother and all the other matriarchs in the family who were really amazing cooks. <laughs> they must have bestowed something on me. That latent food knowledge that, that just yeah. sort of floats around in the air and you breathe it in. Yeah. My grandmother was... My grandmother was like, what the hell? No sous chefs in here. Get out. You know, like you had to kind of sneak those looks. And um, yeah, I love it. Um, let's do uh, some rapid fire questions before we wrap up the interview. Uh, Val, you want to you take the first one? You want me to do it? 
Um, I'll start. What is, let's say, the most misunderstood, like, food or ingredient from your culture? Mm-hmm. Okay, that, this is not rapid fire. <laughs> this is not rapid fire. I'm laughing. Um, uh, I mean, I would say hummus. <laughs> Can you say why? Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, that would be a whole monologue, but, um, uh, I mean, hummus, like it's become ubiquitous with the word dip here in the U S like hummus is the Arabic word for garbanzo beans. So if it ain't got chickpeas in it, it's not hummus. That's fair. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's been like rebranded as an Israeli food or as an American food. And it's like, it completely has been severed from its roots. Uh, and yeah, that makes me very mad and uh, invisibilized as a Palestinian. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, how about your desert island kitchen tools? What do you bring with uh, you? What do you find yourself I, reaching for most often when you're cooking? When I'm cooking, I would say oof. Uh, as, <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> I'm like, can I, does an oven work? Like my little makeshift oven? Yeah. I love that. That's the best baker answer you've ever gotten. It it really is. My little toaster oven. I need to bake things fresh and hot. You could could bring a big oven. It doesn't have to be a toaster. There's no no weight restriction. That would be too much work. Bring a big oven. Maybe a little griddle, like a makeshift griddle. Yeah. I need to be able to toast things. You, You really do think outside of the box. Yeah. Fire. I need fire. <laughs> um, all right. How about favorite summer vegetable? I would have to say, um, you know, corn is not integral into my cuisine, but I love corn. <laughs> and I find ways to integrate that. And then watermelon. Love both of those answers. And I feel like, you know, when you are like in the diaspora, it's just like the most natural thing in the world to also use whatever is like fresh and available to you. And exactly. It, it, you end up actually, you know, like innovating on something even as traditional, oh, yeah. you know, the most traditional dish. So uh, we have an el- elote manushe at Reims right now. It's on our summer menu. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> um, how about uh, a, the, a great meal or the best meal you ever had that cost less than $5? Ooh, uh, mo- uh, probably in Thailand, <laughs> just like a fresh, uh, bowl of pad thai made the right way. <laughs> probably sounds my most memorable. Oh, sounds so good. Um, yes. <laughs> can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Uh, so in the interwebs, <laughs> they can find me mostly on Instagram. That's probably where I hang out the most. Although somebody told me I need to up my Twitter game. So you could, on Instagram, you can find me at reem.aseel and then reems, California, obviously, uh, on our whereabouts and what we're doing, um, there, um, on IG, I'm a seal dash, uh, underscore reem. Um, and yeah, we got a lot going on. If you're in the Bay area, you know, our, our restaurant is open, uh, for outdoor dining. We, we did 
we we saw that variant situation coming <laughs> very easily. So we mm-hmm. did not open for indoors. Um, you know, our workers are sort of our primary concern. Uh, so making sure that every field, buddy. But we have this beautiful patio out um, parklet that's here to stay, and uh, fresh fresh music, fresh fresh vibes, good vibes. Um, so come visit us and have a manushe on our parklet. And um, you can also find us in the grocery stores. We've launched our uh, wholesale line of manaish, which is the plural for manusha, our flatbreads. So you can order them on Good Eggs or Berkeley Bowl. And then nationally, we have this amazing partnership, uh, thanks to Burlap and Barrel, (laughs) sourcing all the best ingredients um, with three spice mixes uh, that are sort of our... Trademark spice mixes at Reams, California, a seven spice mix, a chili spice mix, and a za'atar blend. And I think the next round is coming from Palestine. Yeah, so the current za'atar yeah. is, is from Syria, but the next one is coming from a farm outside of Ramallah in Palestine. Yeah, so it's it's the best of me, <laughs> Palestinian Syrian. Um, and yeah, and I'm working on a cookbook and uh, that should be coming out next spring. So there will be a lot of good use you can put those spices to. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks to, uh, as always, I always mix this up. I do it every week. You'd think I'd learn how to do it. Uh, you can reach <laughs> us by email, yfood at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And I also hang out on Instagram at foodie in New York. You can um, <laughs> can't get it right. Thank you to our amazing <laughs> engineer, Armin Spengen. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song. And most of all, Reem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the insight and the wisdom and the great conversation as always. Awesome. Thank you all. Talk to you next week. Bye. See you next week. YFood is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>